It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Hal Hodson, the Economist technology correspondent. And coming up on today's show, what's next for the evolution of the helicopter? The new idea is to let's build some helicopters that fly very differently and can fly much faster. And the discovery of the world's oldest cheese. It is very, very rare to find this kind of food in archaeology. But first, we head to China and take a look at the recent rumours that Google has a secret project named Dragonfly to create a restricted and censored China-specific version of its search engine in an attempt to re-establish itself in the market for search. To discuss this, I'm joined on the phone from Shanghai by Stephanie Studer, The Economist's senior China business correspondent. Hello, Stephanie. Hello, Hal. What exactly is Google planning to do in China? Well, as far as we know, and this has come from a a leaked report from inside the company, it wants to create something that it's tried to do before in 2006, which is a local version of its search engine, but essentially scrubbing from it any terms that are sensitive for the Chinese government. So essentially, it would be falling in line with what local internet providers here and other search engines here are doing already. And Google has already been in the news for its um, employees sort of being up in arms about its various activities, particularly with the US military. Are we seeing any kind of pushback from them on this? Because it's historically been a pretty touchy area. There has been pushback, yes. From what we've heard, there's a letter now circulating within the company and about 1,400 employees have signed this and it's asking, as you'd expect, for greater transparency, a seat at the table and the ability to review the products that Google is putting out. It was pretty controversial when it launched Google.cn in 2006 and indeed it pulled out in 2010 when essentially it felt it couldn't stomach the censorship restrictions any longer. What is it that you think is driving Google to do this? I mean, you know, it's obviously going to be controversial. It seems, you know, it was only ever going to be a matter of time before someone found out. It's unlikely they'd be able to do it in complete secret forever. So what do you think they were thinking? Well, clearly, China is a huge potential market for Google. It has 800 million internet users by the latest official count. And this is a market that is essentially untapped for many Western tech companies because of the difficulties they have in operating in this in this market. I think probably Google may know that it will be difficult for it to compete with Baidu, which is the main search engine in China, and it has three quarters of the market share here for searches. We heard from what was leaked that it wants to be sure that it has a good enough product, one that can beat Baidu before it launches. But if you think that its search terms are going to be censored in the same way that those are here of local search engines, it's difficult to see how it can differentiate itself. 
And I mean, from your reporting on the ground in China, do you do you think that there's people who sort of are waiting, clamoring for Google to come back? It's hard to tell. There were sort of mixed signals on social media here. Um, there was a poll that seemed to go out that showed that a majority favored a Google return, and that was quickly taken down for some reason. From speaking to um, people here in Shanghai, many actually said to me, I visited an internet cafe and they said to me they used google.cn back in the day, but they'd grown so accustomed to Baidu now that um, they weren't too excited about the prospect of its return. And then those Chinese who are actually using VPNs, proxies in order to access Google, they told me that a censored Google just didn't make any sense to them. So, you know, they, they're going to continue as long as they can to use this software that enables them to get Google and, uh, and all its search results, not a censored version. I guess I would just be surprised if Google has made a huge miscalculation and, and that there isn't much demand for its services and that it turns out their employees aren't going to even let them do it anyway. It seemed from what the uh, Google's chief executive said, and internally at least, that they weren't ready to launch this yet in China. It's, I mean, it's unclear to what extent this was a very serious project or one that was about to be put in motion here. I mean, it seems to me from the Chinese perspective that getting approval from the government here will be hard. But we've clearly seen an uptick in activity uh, in China for Google recently. It has invested in JD.com quite substantially. It's also offering uh, translation apps and uh, document management services. So there's clearly interest. And I think it knows that if it can come here with a search engine, then that opens the doors to, to other things for example, work on AI, which is something that Baidu is pushing quite hard on as well. But I think it's clear that Google would have an edge on that. Stephanie, thank you very much for coming on Babbage. You're listening to Babbage from The Economist. Next up, the earliest known design for a helicopter was by Leonardo da Vinci in 1486. But it took almost half a century to build a practical working example. Now that our skies are beginning to fill with drones, what future is there for the helicopter? To answer this, I'm joined by Paul Markilli, The Economist's innovation editor. Hello, Paul. Hello. So how much of a rival to the helicopter is the drone? The drone is quite a rival. They're cheap to buy. They're easy to fly. You don't need a pilot's license and they can do lots of jobs. The helicopter, though, can carry things that are much heavier and also carry lots of people. They can fly into dangerous situations such as rescuing people off a mountain where you might need a winchman on board. So there's two very different roles here, but the drone is definitely taking business away from helicopters in some areas. And the helicopter makers think that future helicopters will give the drones an even bigger run for their money. And what are the shortcomings of the modern-day helicopter? Well, a helicopter's a bit of a devil to fly. I mean, not like an aeroplane. An aeroplane will naturally fly and wants to fly and, and will glide, you know, even if the engines uh, stop running. A helicopter, you've got a lot of levers and things to push around. It's a bit like learning to ride a unicycle, which is no easy thing to do. So you need immense piloting skills. But today, of course, with electronic flight controls, these things are being simplified all the time so that we can fly both jet fighters and helicopters a bit like you might fly a computer game. That's not to debase the skills the pilots have, but that is the direction of the technology. 
But the other problem with a helicopter is there is an inherent limit to how fast these things can fly because those whirling rotors just kind of run out of puff after a certain speed. And a helicopter becomes quite dangerous. It can vibrate and even flip over. So helicopters are limited to a certain speed of that's about 280 kilometers per hour, 174 miles per hour. Beyond much beyond that, they um, simply would fall to pieces. So that makes a helicopter useful, but not very fast. So the new idea is to let's build some helicopters that fly very differently and can fly much faster. So how are helicopters evolving to compete with drones? There are two of the helicopter companies have slightly different ideas about how to do this. One is Sikorsky, who uh, pioneered the first uh, commercial practical helicopter. The Sikorsky idea, it still looks a bit like a helicopter, but you've got two sets of blades, one on top of the other. Now, those go around in opposite directions, and that counters something called torque, which is a twisting motion. And what normally counters torque on a helicopter is that whirling thing on the back of the helicopter, the rear rotor, which spins around. So if you don't need that anymore, you've got some space on the back. So Sikorsky pops a propeller on the back along, which pushes their helicopter along at a much greater rate of knots. So they have a very fast helicopter that still looks sort of a bit like a helicopter. Now, the Bell idea goes even further. They use something called a tilt rotor. And this has the rotors spinning around on on the tips of some wings that extend beyond the fuselage of the helicopter to take off the rotors point upwards, so up it goes. To fly forwards, the rotors tilt forward and the helicopter flies along like an aeroplane, again, much faster than a conventional helicopter. And when you want to land, the rotors tilt up again and it lands again. And this has um, possible commercial applications as a sort of new type of flying craft to fly in and out of airports. And they could carry you know, quite a lot of people, 20, 30 people, and even, even bigger than that eventually. So we have these very different hovering shapes emerging in the sky. Now, these are only test aircraft at first. They're feeling their way into the market, but both potentially have commercial applications. And I suppose one area where drones seem to have the edge over helicopters is in autonomous flight. But are we going to see autonomous helicopters anytime soon? You will indeed. Both of these helicopters have the ability to be what their manufacturers call pilot optional. So that could mean if they're going off to do something, there'll be two crew or three crew and a winchman. Or there might only be one crew member and the co-pilot is the computer. Or they could indeed fly autonomously, for instance, flying into a combat zone to pick up a downed helicopter pilot, you could do that autonomously. But maybe if you're rescuing somebody at sea, you need people on board. And maybe if you're carrying passengers from one place to another, like a president from the front lawn to an airport, maybe he'd like to have a pilot too. Just in case. Just in case. (laughs) Paul, thank you very much. That's a pleasure. What are your thoughts on the evolution of the helicopter or on Google returning to China? Tell us in an email and send it our way to radio at economist.com or find us on Twitter at Economist Radio. Finally, in 1885, tomb raiders in ancient Egypt discovered the final resting place of Tamez, a powerful mayor of Memphis who ruled between 1290 and 1213 BC. However, after shifting sands buried the tomb again, It was uncovered only in 2010 by a team of researchers from the University of Cairo. The raiders seem to have ignored what may be its most valuable treasure, the world's oldest cheese, 
I'm joined on the phone now by Dr. Enrico Greco of the University of Catania to discuss the find. Hello, Dr. Greco. Hello. Tell us, what was this find? How did you actually discover it? We meet for the first time Dr. Ola and uh, Dr. Mona, and they are the two professors from the University of Cairo that had uh, led the expedition and excavation on the tomb of Thames. And uh, after a few years, they discovered this sample. They asked us to make a chemical analysis because there was some clues that indicates it was some kind of food, but it doesn't know which kind of food it was. And so how did it appear in the tomb itself? It doesn't sound like it, it looked much like any kind of cheese that anyone would be familiar with. What did it actually look like when they found it? It, it was just a whitish mass and powdered mass. And there was no one clues that indicated it was cheese because of the perishability of the of this kind of materials. And it is very, very rare to find this kind of food in archaeology. Tell us about how you figured out that it was actually cheese. We start with uh, the common analysis with this case, for example, the gas chromatography and the mass spectroscopy, but we didn't find any kind of fat. It was very, very strange because sometimes we use this kind of technique to investigate the fats, but in this case, there, there was none. So we, we develop and we use a new kind of uh, technique to investigate it. It is the proteomics. So we use the uh, to investigate the proteins in the sample, and the proteins are very, very specific for the cheese or for the milk. Uh, in that case, we found it, it was a diary product. And the sample also told us about something new about the kinds of diseases that existed in ancient Egypt, did they not? Another information we get from this kind of sample was the presence of the Brucella melitensis, is a specific bacteria that causes the brucellosis. And it is a very important disease that actually is, it exists today in, uh, in Egypt, in the North Africa, and in other countries. And it is very important to know that in that period, this kind of disease exists, and it is important to know that Egyptian people could have this disease. We have some previous uh, indirect evidence of this disease because there is some traces in the skeleton of some mummies. But the first time we proved with a biochemical analysis that this disease exists in the ancient Egypt. So discovering disease in a 3,000-year-old cheese. Fascinating. Dr. Greco, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. And if you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com forward slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Hal Hodson. In London, this is The Economist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.